Good morning. It's good to be with you. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Turn to Good morning. It's good to be with you. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Turn to Good morning. It's good to be with you. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Turn to um, We've never been a part of a church like North Wake, and most people that I talk to here have also never been a part of a church like North Wake. We are very grateful. My wife and I and three kids are very grateful to be here. We love the church. We love you. We love our small group. Um, and we love our pastors. I trust that you do as well. I think um, our, our pastors, though, though North Wake is by no means a perfect place, our pastors, they get the right thing, the big things right, it seems to me. They major on the majors, which I love. Uh, and I, I love to learn from them. And I trust you do as well. Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be- begin reading in verse 7. If you'll stand with me. We're going to read 7 through 16 together. Paul says this, Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. For it says, When he ascended on high, he took prisoners into captivity. He gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is the same as the one who ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the training of the saints in the work of the ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into Him who is the head, Christ. From Him the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your kindness to us, especially the kindness that you've shown us in Christ, who is our head, who is our king, who is the Messiah. Father, thank you for the chance to come together this morning freely and worship you and to do it in community. And Lord, now I pray as we've read your word, I pray that you would open our eyes and ears to hear and see Jesus in your word, that it may inflame our hearts, that it will inform our minds and we'll put our hands and feet to work for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. Amen. You may be seated. I want to talk to you for just a few minutes this morning about this idea that every member is a minister. That every member is a minister. I grew up in a, by God's grace, in a Christian home. I have two other brothers. I have an older brother named Brandon, who's a good bit bigger than I am, and he thinks better looking than I am. It's probably true as well. He's a, he's a principal of our old high school. I, I grew up in Mississippi. He and I, especially my older brother, are closer in age to me, and we grew up um, sort of living a life that surrounds what I think of as the religious calendar that starts with football and then moves to basketball and then baseball, and somewhere in the process you take a nap and then you go right back to football practice and it starts all over again, and frankly I love that. Uh, we, had a, we had a blast growing up doing that. My brother, uh, he went off 
to school after he and I, it's fun to, it's fun to grow up, I trust that many of you have done this as well with siblings, it's fun to grow up and watch what, what you become, but even more what your siblings, your brothers and sisters become, and how the Lord uses them. My brother and I took different paths, though walking, following Christ, I trust, along the way. And, and as he moved along, he, he decided that he wanted to go to school and be first a special education specialist, and he did that for our community back home for a number of years. He was the only male special ed specialist, so he bounced from school to school to serve anywhere from K through 12th grade uh, students, and just, minute, just, just helping them, serving them, helping them to learn, working with their disabilities and helping them learn. And then he became a basketball coach, and the process of that was quite a successful coach for about 10 years, and then was an assistant principal, and then now is the principal of our high school that he and I both graduated from. A few years ago, my my wife and I were back home for Christmas, and we were sitting at my brother and sister-in-law's house and just talking to them about life in general. We don't get to see them very much anymore. Um, So we were talking about, he he especially became curious about, what do you do on a daily basis? He's asking me this. He says, as a a college and seminary teacher, what, what do you do? And so we talked through that a bit, and then I, and then I looked at him, and I said, well, tell me, what, what do you do? I'm, what does a day look like for you? And for him, he, he just begins to tell stories, which is, are always fascinating, and he jumped immediately into a story about a kid named Corey, and the story that he's telling me is set in the time when he's an assistant principal, and he's in charge of all the disciplinary action that takes place in the school. And this kid named Corey had, had been in and out of trouble, especially related to drugs. 16-year-old kid, 15, 16-year-old, 9th, 10th grade, in and out of trouble, in and out of drugs, though it wasn't so much that he had been using drugs so much as it was that he would just be caught with them. After the second or third offense, Corey's drugged to my brother's office again. And Brandon, Brandon doesn't see his responsibility as simply administering the discipline to Corey or any other student. He sees his responsibility as someone first and foremost to be interested in this human being, this image bearer who sits across the table from me and try to understand their situation. So he, he asks questions in that direction. He says, Corey, this is not the first time. In fact, it's not even the second time this has happened. Tell me what's going on. Why, why do you continue to do this? What's going on with you? And Corey opens up a bit about his own life. And within a few minutes, Brandon realizes that Corey is in a rather difficult home situation where basically everyone in the immediate and extended family live together, and everyone in that family pretty much does drugs. In fact, Brandon asked him at some point in the process, Corey, tell me someone in your family, one person in your family that doesn't use. And he thought for about a minute and a half, and he finally said, I have an aunt that I've never seen use drugs, but not sure she doesn't, I've just never seen it. Well, Brandon talks to him more, they have to talk about the the disciplinary action, and he found out, in fact, even deeper that not just that Corey would be getting in trouble with this, and not just that his family was, was sort of a, a drug household, but that his parents, his own father, in fact, would, would give Corey drugs to take to school to give to another kid, a minor, who could then take to his parents. In other words, they were using Corey as sort of their pack mule to deliver drugs because he was 16 years old. If he got caught, he's a minor, it's a slap on the wrist, but he's not going to go to jail. If his parents got caught, they may go to jail. So they used their 16-year-old son. Brandon talks to him through the process sends him on uh, with, with the discipline that he had to incur, and a few weeks later, it happens again. Same kind of thing. The people come to him and say, Corey's being caught with drugs again. He's in in-school in suspension. You need to go talk to him. So Brandon drops his head, walks down there, sees Corey, and he knows that at this point, this is basically Corey's last straw. And he sees Corey. Corey has his head down, um, a rather insecure and deflated kind of person already. 
And Brandon stoops down to talk to him and says, Corey, look me in the eyes. And Corey floats his eyes up close to my brother's eyes. And, and Brandon says this, Corey, do you want out? Do you want out? And Corey says, show me how. Show me how to get out of this. I didn't put myself into this, and I don't see any way out. Brandon's telling me that story, and then he turns around, and he's interested in, okay, so what do you do every day? Just tell me through that. Within three minutes of of him sharing that story, within three minutes of that, he he looks at me, and he says, in all seriousness, he says, Benjamin, I I don't see how what I do as a principal is as important as what pastors and missionaries and seminary professors do. And I found that Brandon's not the only one who feels that way. Our passage this morning, however, I I think this story and our passage come together quite well because this story illustrates what I think are two very dangerous divides in the church. Not just our church, but in the church as a whole. The first divide is the divide between the pulpit and the pew, that somehow there's something more sacred about what's going on here and less sacred about what takes place in the pew and in the rest of God's world and in the rest of the jobs that are occupied in God's world. That's one of them. Another is the divide between what we might call Sunday and Monday, that somehow what takes place here on Sunday, regardless of where your paycheck comes from, what takes place here, it struggles to actually stretch into the rest of the week. Our passage today, especially for that first piece, this pulpit and pew divide, our passage today simply will not let that happen. Ephesians 4 does not allow for such a divide. But we're going to go after this. There's a lot that could be said about our passage this morning, but this, this really will be the focal point of what we're talking about. Before we get there, though, look back with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's see how we approach this passage and what Paul is doing. In the whole of the book of Ephesians, which some of you are studying with us in our Uh, In our life change class, our study class on Ephesians, Paul is addressing a rather blended audience. It's a blended audience of both Jews and Gentiles, and especially in chapter 2, you see how he's gone after this very directly, where he's saying, some of you Jews, some of you Gentile, you think rather differently, but there's now unity in Christ, that this dividing wall of hostility has been torn down because of Jesus. In fact, then, in the same way that Paul sets up many of his letters, he has a lot of his letters, there's first half theory, second half practice, and somewhere along the way there's a pivot point. Ephesians chapter 4 is that pivot point. Ephesians 4, 1 in particular, he says this, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling that you have received. This, this language of walk becomes the dominant theme or the dominant motif in the whole of the book of Ephesians, that you don't walk the way that you used to. Remember Ephesians 1 through 2, chapter 2, 1 through 3, and other places as well in Ephesians, that you used to walk this way, but now because of what Christ has done for you, you walk a different way. And here in chapter 4, verse 1, the, the walking language here, it's not just subtle language. This is an imperative. It's an exclamation point in the passage where he says, I therefore urge you, don't walk that way anymore, but you walk this way. And then he explains that with a few characteristics, that you walk in humility and gentleness and in patience, accepting in love and keeping the unity of the Spirit with peace. Humility, gentleness, patience, accepting in love and keeping unity. Now, 4, 1 through 6 is not our passage, but I I have to stop for a second and just ask the question, how's that going? Humility. Gentleness, patience, striving for unity in your small group, 
in your family, at your job? How's that going? This is the way we're called to walk. In chapter 4, verse 3, then he begins to talk about the ones. This first half of chapter 4, or first few verses of chapter 4, Paul is emphasizing to us the unity of the body. And then in our passage, he's going to get to the diversity of that same body. He talks about one spirit, one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Regardless of who you are and where you come from, regardless Jew or Gentile, black, white, Hispanic, doesn't matter where you come from, we are one in Christ. Yet we have diversity about who we are as well. After the ones come the many. Now the many, the unity, and the diversity. The first thing Paul tells us about in, in this passage in verses 7 through 10 is he talks to us about the gift giver. Before we get to this passage, especially verses 11 and 12, that talk about these particular gifts and then reinforce the fact that everyone, every member is a minister. Before we get there, Paul wants to draw our attention to the gift giver himself. Look at verse 7 again with me. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of the Messiah's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took prisoners into captivity. He gave gifts to the people. The first thing that Paul wants to mention is to, for us to notice this Messiah. And I think it's important that he even uses the language of Messiah here instead of just Jesus or instead of just Christ. Because he's talking to people who perhaps they don't, having a blended audience of both Jew and Gentile, perhaps some people are not exactly sure which Messiah we're talking about. We're not talking about just anyone who came along and said, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ. But this is the one who said, this is the one who ascended. And before he ascended, he had descended. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, the one who we saw born of a virgin, living a sinless life, dying on our behalf, and then three days later, witnessed by over 500, he raised from the dead. This is the one who has the authority and the one who makes us one. Paul quotes Psalm 68 when he says, the one who ascended on high, he took prisoners into captivity and gave gifts to the people. Then he says, but what does this mean that he ascended except that he descended to the lower parts of the earth? For the one who descended is the same as the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. I think the bottom line that Paul is getting after here is which Messiah is this? It's the one who walked with us and talked with us perfectly. It's the one who has all authority and the one who died on our behalf and defeated death in his resurrection. Not just the gift giver, but Paul also wants to talk to us about the gifts themselves. Look at verse 11. And he, who is Jesus, personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers. For the training, or some of your translations will say, for the equipping of the saints in the work of the ministry. To build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Paul here focuses on, on this fascinating place. Sometimes people call this the fourfold or sometimes the fivefold gifting of the ministry. The list that is given here, he tells us about apostles, about prophets, evangelists, and then pastor teachers. I want to talk briefly about each one. We went into greater depth in, in our life change class. You can listen to that online. But in short, the, the language of apostles and prophets, Paul has brought this up twice already in chapter 2 and then also in chapter 3 of Ephesians. He's talked about sort of this couplet of apostles and prophets. And what he's getting after, the, the bottom line is these are foundational ministries for the early church. 
especially for apostles, I think what Paul's referring to here is capital A apostles, people like Paul himself, who have a unique authority in the whole of Christianity to give us this foundational ministry, much of which ultimately becomes the canon of the New Testament. So when the canon comes, it comes with this authority that was given to the apostles early on. Some might say that perhaps there's also a lowercase a apostleship gift that continues on. You might see that in church planters and other things as well. Perhaps that is what's going on. Nevertheless, I think Paul is especially reinforcing the authority of the apostles who laid this foundation of this faith once for all delivered to the saints that we continue in today. He also talks about the prophets. Prophets of Old Testament or prophets of New Testament? I think probably both. There's specifically something new going on with New Testament prophets, but these people build upon the thus saith the Lord kind of ministry of the prophets of old as well. He mentions the evangelists and then the pastors and teachers. Evangelists are interesting because I wonder even if our own, in our own context, I know in the tradition that I grew up in, there, there were people called evangelists who would come to our church about once a, about once a year or so. And they would, do, they would give a revival or do a revival, they would call it. And I'm not disparaging that in any way, but I, I can't help but wonder if that's a bit different than what's going on with the New Testament gift of evangelists. The, the very language of evangelism, to speak the language of the good news to other people, means it has to be directed especially to those who haven't heard of Jesus. It doesn't mean that evangelists have nothing to say to the church itself, but especially an outward focus, an external focused kind of ministry seems to be the priority for this type of gifting. And then there's the pastor-teacher. Perhaps these are two gifts, perhaps these are one. I think probably Paul has in mind this same one person. Although there's uniquenesses, there's distinctions about these gifts of pastoring and teaching. This is what we're most familiar with in our context. When we, we think about, especially if we're comparing well, this, this pulpit and pew divide, and we're comparing ourselves with what goes on up here, the people who are paid by the church to do ministry, uh, apostles, prophets, and evangelists, it's hard for us sometimes to compare. But pastors, teachers, that we know because we see that on a regular basis. Well, I think what's going on here with Paul is that these are really one and the same, that the giftings are quite different. All pastors are teachers, but not all teachers are pastors. Nevertheless, Paul, Paul tells us that Christ himself has gifted these people, has gifted these people for the equipping of the saints for ministry. Why this gift? Why list these gifts? Because Paul wants us to understand that not just those who stand on the stage are in ministry, but indeed every person who is in Christ has been given the ministry. This is the linchpin of our passage this morning. Verse 11. This is the linchpin. Because oftentimes, the kind of response that I get from people, I've talked about this a lot with a number of people, and the kind of response that you get is this, but I thought the pastors did the ministry. I thought the people in verse 11 did the ministry. Why does it say that those people have been gifted to equip me to do the ministry? Why could that be the case? Because it's true. Because it's true. Five years or so ago, my wife and I came to North Wake. Now, um, my wife is Ashley. I'm Benjamin. We have a camp, a Dawson, and an Emma. That makes us A, B, C, D, E, because we're OCD like that. We have a good time. It's a lot of fun, rowdy at our house. Uh, but we came about, about five and a half years ago, really, to North Wake and have loved it. Loved it. Not long after being here, though, we noticed something interesting about, about North Wake. We noticed a bit of a divide in the congregation. 
Not a divide of animosity in any sense. Not people mad at each other. Not that at all. But we notice sort of two categories in the congregation. Something like the seminary and the ordinary. Are we the only people who've ever noticed that? Something like that. The seminary and then what some might see as the ordinary. Or perhaps it's something like those who are God-called to ministry, and I don't know anyone who has animosity about that, but those God-called to the ministry and then the rest of us. Ephesians 4.12 simply will not have that kind of thinking. For every Christian, listen close, every Christian dons the clerical collar. It doesn't matter what your uniform looks like when you go to work. If you are in Christ, when you place on your uniform, you wear the clerical collar to work. Listen to John Stott, his commentary on Ephesians. He says this, Here's the incontrovertible evidence that the New Testament envisages ministry not as the prerogative of the clerical elite, but as the privileged calling of all the people of God. Thank God that in our generation, this biblical vision of an every member ministry is taking a firm hold in the church. He goes on to tell a story about where he saw this illustrated well. He says, I saw the principle of every member ministry well illustrated when I visited St. Paul's Church in Darien, Connecticut a few years ago. He said, on the front cover of their Sunday bulletin, I read the name of the rector, which said, the Reverend Everett Fulham. Then it listed the names of the associate rector and the assistant rector. And the next came this following line, ministers, the entire congregation. Ministers, name, the entire congregation. Stott says, it was startling, but undeniably biblical. This this divide between the pulpit and the pew should never have existed. And in my view, should be pulled together and closed now. To be clear about this, I in no way want to disparage or undermine the role of the pastors among us. The role of those who are ordained to the ministry, set apart, Paul will tell us, to the ministry of word and prayer. I don't want to disparage or undermine that at all. For the role of our pastors, as I said at the beginning, I have the deepest respect for our pastors. And have gotten to know several of them so well. I have the deepest respect for them. And there is a centrality to what they do in the community of faith. But not a superiority. There's a centrality to those who are set apart for the ministry of word and prayer. They sit at the center of the community of faith in service to us. And overseeing, uh, under shepherds of Christ, overseeing our souls for our good, but also in service to us, to equip us for ministry, for the gifts that Christ himself has given us. There's a centrality to us, but not a a superiority. F.F. Bruce says this in his epistle, his uh, commentary on the epistle to the Ephesians. He says, the gifts that are enumerated in verse 11, those fivefold giftings we talk about, The gifts that are enumerated in verse 11 do not monopolize the church's ministry. Instead, their function is so to help and direct the church that all members may perform several ministries for the good of the whole. Then he says this, in the theocracy of grace, there is in fact no laity. In the theocracy of grace, there is in fact no laity. Why would there be no laity? Because everyone in the theocracy of grace is clergy, is ordained is serving Christ, administering the sacrament, giving life to the world as Jesus did, and then handing that ministry off to us. One scholar said the 16th century reclaimed the priesthood of the believer 
perhaps the 21st century can, re- can reclaim the ministry of every, every believer. So what gifts do you possess? To be clear, this is just the beginning of a conversation. I wish we had more time to develop deeply these different gifts because each one of you clearly from the scriptures are uniquely gifted to serve Christ and to serve the body in your own way. So let's just begin the conversation by asking, what gifts do you possess? If not those listed in verse 11, then which ones? There are other lists in the New Testament. Romans 12, as well as 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, along with Ephesians 4, give us what we often think of as a list of spiritual gifts. But they're not the whole of every gift that's possible. They get us down the road to give us an idea of the kinds of things that one might be gifted in. 1 Peter 4.10 says this, that based on the gift that you have received, everyone should use it to serve others as good managers. Hold on to that language. That whatever gift that you've been given, Peter says, you must use it to serve others as good managers of the varied grace of God. Not everyone gifted in the same way. Not everyone gifted in the same measure, the beginning of our passage tells us. Nevertheless, whatever you've been given, it's your responsibility to steward and to manage it well for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. So what gifts might they be? Perhaps your gifting is not something like apostles or prophets or evangelists or pastor or teacher. So what might it be? I would encourage you to think out a bit. To think about the whole of the kingdom which belongs to Christ. Think about what you do on a daily basis. Think about even the material abilities that you've been given, uniquely given perhaps where you serve people at your job or you're very talented at something that you do at work or you're really good at something at home and other people want to learn from you. Perhaps those are gifts as well that Christ has given to you that you can steward or manage in such a way as to serve Christ, love others, and promote the kingdom of Christ across the whole of his world. What gifts might these be? Everything else in the kingdom also has a place for gifting to be given. This is the same Christ, by the way. We tend to think that these spiritual gifts that we've been given, that they stop at the walls of the church. But that's not the Jesus that we serve. The Christ that we serve, listen close, does not stay in his lane. Because it all belongs to him. This is the Christ who has all authority. The Great Commission doesn't begin with go and make disciples. The Great Commission begins with all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. And make disciples. This is the Christ who is king of the entire kingdom according to Matthew 4 and Luke 4. This is the Christ of all things and everything over and over and over in the book of Ephesians. If we begin reading in chapter 1 and move forward, in verse 110 you would see everything comes together. Everything comes together in the Messiah, both in heaven and on earth. 122 and 23, three different times. And he put everything under Jesus' feet and appointed him as head over everything. For the church which is his body, for the fullness of the one who fulfills all all things. 3, 8 through 10, the God who created all things. This is a Christ whose authority does not stop at the walls of our church. It does not stop at the fringes of our small group. The kingdom of Christ extends over the whole of creation, even over your vocation, even over your job. What gifts do you have to flex for the sake of Christ, and how can you put those things to work inside and outside the walls of the church. You might say, so what? Whatever those things are, so what? What do we do? I would say, if Ephesians 4.12 is true, then if you are in Christ, you must be in the ministry. You're in the game. You've got the uniform on. You've got to play. 
You've been gifted in such a way as to play, but you have to figure out exactly what your role is. If 2 Corinthians 5 is also true, we know 2 Corinthians 5.17 well, but we forget 18. 5.17 saying this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. That old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Most of you have that memorized. But what comes after that? Paul also says that everything is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He gave us the ministry of of reconciliation. That's not a gift that was given only to the ordained. That's a gift that's given to everyone who's been made new in Christ. Do you feel the weight of that? Do you feel the weight of your responsibility? The weight of the reality that you are in ministry? So where is my ministry? I'd ask you, what do you do every day? I reflect back on my conversation with my older brother, and, it, and it, it kills me. It broke my heart when he said, I just don't see how what I do is as important as what pastors and missionaries and seminary professors do. It breaks my heart. Because I want to say, Brandon, what do you do every day? Look at the people around you. In every place that there is a relationship, in every relationship, it comes packed with the potential to love God, and to love those people. With every relationship is packed potential to love God and to love other people. And if the architect of all things, Jesus himself, if he said there's nothing more important about about living in my world than that you must love God and love other people, there's nothing more important than that. You have the opportunity at wherever you are every day, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and following, inside the church and outside the walls of the church. Everywhere you are, you have the opportunity to love God and love other people. It doesn't matter where your paycheck comes from. And the degree to which we hit that target is the degree to which our ministry is successful. Successful ministry and successful living has a different bottom line than every other job. It's not green and dollar signs. It's filled with blood, sweat, and tears of people who love others more than themselves. So what do you do? You work in a cubicle. You cut grass. You coach baseball. I think the godliest of all gifts. You're a stay-at-home mom. You teach preschool. You work construction. With each one of these jobs comes the opportunity for ministry to be clear, the responsibility of ministry. Do you interact with other people? With every relationship comes this opportunity to love God and others. There's nothing more important than this. The ministry isn't restricted to the ordained among us. Loving God and neighbor is the business of every believer. Some of you might say then, as often comes, I need help with that. I understand, Benjamin, I get it. Let's just say that you're right for just a second. Okay, Paul is right in Ephesians 4, and he's right in 2 Corinthians 5, that I'm in the ministry, but I don't know exactly how to do that. I don't know how to connect the dots between what we do on Sunday and what I do the rest of my life. I don't know how to connect the dots between what I hear on Sunday and the struggles that I have as a dad or as a mom at home. I don't know how to connect these dots. How do I get help? And that's where I say our study-serve model is brilliant. It's brilliant. That's the smartest thing that Jeff Doyle has ever done in his life, is come up with a study-serve model. Our study classes are designed for this very thing. They're designed to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. 
Take advantage of these classes. Here are just a few of them. We have classes on doctrine. Mark Lederbach and others are leading a class right now. If you're just not sure exactly what you believe, we have classes on doctrine. We have classes that just teach the Bible. Right now we're doing a New Testament book on Ephesians. Uh, Chip McDaniel and I and and several others, we talked through the the prophets last semester. That was really hard. We'll probably never do that again, but it was a lot of fun. Bible classes. There's classes that teach you how to share your faith as well. You say, "I, I believe in Jesus. I just don't know how to talk about him. There's classes that teach you that. There are classes about the spiritual disciplines that we've had in the past. You want to begin to understand exactly how are you gifted. We have classes that help you with this. We have a class a few years ago on faith and work. Exactly how does my faith connect to my 9 to 5 or my 5 to 9 for some of you? How does that happen? We have, we have pastors, we have elders, we have other men and women to help you connect those dots. We had a class on tough questions about Christianity a few years ago. One on the world next door about world religions, especially those that, that saturate our area here. Our study classes are fueled with the conviction that regardless of where your paycheck comes from, every member is in ministry. And we have to begin the conversation by embracing that truth. That though Larry and Jeff and our other elders who stand here, though they stand in a privileged place, and indeed they do, but it's not a place of superiority. They stand in a place of centrality, serving you, to equip you, to go out, and to serve God's world. In fact, the mission of North Wake, the mission of North Wake is to reach the lost and equip them to join with us in the process of becoming mature and ministering worshipers of God. Even in our own mission, the whole of what our church is about is packed with Ephesians chapter 4. Equip, mature, and ministering. Perhaps, perhaps you see this as maybe I'm doing a little bit to equip or maybe I'm being equipped a little bit, but frankly, I'm not growing in maturity. Or maybe I'm growing in maturity, but I'm not actually ministering in any way. Or maybe none of these things are true about you. Please take advantage of what we have to offer you, what our pastors have put together for the sake of the body of Christ. This is where our passage ends. Look back with me in verse 13. Paul says all these things, verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by waves and blown around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow up in every way into Him who is the head. Lord Christ. From him, the whole body is fitted together and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. Paul brings this whole thing together, starting out with letting us know the one who gives the gift is Jesus. And Jesus gives gifts to certain people, some some given in this very special kind of of gifting or this special kind of ministry for equipping the saints for the rest of the ministry. Ministry that's handled in the rest of Christ's kingdom. And all this is to the end, that we grow in maturity in Christ. That we're no longer adolescents, but that we're bigger spiritually today than we were yesterday. And we're bigger tomorrow than we are today. 
And that as we grow, that we look behind us and we call others to come along with us. And that we speak the truth and love to one another. And that we call everyone to this one head who is Jesus. Each one of us doing our own part. For the sake of Christ and His kingdom come. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the responsibility and the opportunity to serve you in ministry. Whether we wear a hard hat during the week or we wear an apron during the week, whether we put on the clothes of a professor or a principal or a teacher or a mailman, Father, thank you that you've given us the opportunity to minister reconciliation to your broken world. And would you, Lord, give us grace to see how to do that more faithfully. For your sake. Amen.